Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming. I always say that when we begin, but I especially mean it today that you come to hear about my book. It's a little bit embarrassing, so I'm very appreciative to Clean Terracani for suggesting that we do this, for Marina Harrison for taking care of so many of the mechanics, for the library for letting us do a book signing there, to the UCI bookstore for selling books, and particularly thankful to my colleague Rick Hassan for agreeing to do this. Um, I think this is the third time we've done this together, that you did this for an earlier book, I got to do it for your book. We're doing this now, and you promised we could do it next year on your book on Justice Scalia, where I get to be the one asking the questions. Next year, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> well, I look forward to it. And most of all, very grateful to all of you for coming. What we thought we would do is have a conversation where Rick would ask questions, and I'd do my best to answer about my new book, Closing the Courthouse Door, How Your Constitutional Rights Became Unenforceable. And I think we were going to do this for about a half hour or so, and then take your questions. And then I know there's a reception and food afterwards. Well, thank you. Um, let's just move a little closer here. If we both stay in these chairs and don't fall out, it's going to be, that'll be enough of a victory for, uh, for this event. Um, it's really an honor to be here and talk about Irwin's book, especially because Irwin has been so uh, helpful uh, in my writing and uh, giving me uh, feedback that this is just a, a small way for me to pay back and, and really a pleasure to, uh, to uh, talk about this, this wonderful book, which uh, and I'll see what it looks like. My daughter saw this, said, great cover. So I said, well, you can try reading the book. And, so like, <laughs> and I think everyone knows the author gets no credit for the cover at all. <laughs> Yale University Press gets 100% of the credit for designing the cover. I would be terrible at that. Well, I did notice uh, from your um, acknowledgments that, like me, uh, you also had no control over the title of your book. Uh, what your title would have been um, uh, Enforcing the Constitution, I believe. Right. Uh, it was enforcing the Constitution, the role of the federal courts, and um, they said, no, the title is Closing the Courthouse Door, How Your Constitution <laughs> Might Be Enforceable. And they were right. Well, I wanted to name uh, my book, The Voting Wars, um, The Election Administration Wars, Causes, Consequences, and Cures in the Internet Era. And I was told, why don't you write a book people will actually read? So, uh, <laughs> uh, so um, when I was a student in federal courts a long time ago at UCLA, I had the great Kenneth Karst as my federal courts teacher. It was the hardest course in law school by far. And if my memory is correct, um, he recalled taking federal courts at Harvard with Henry Hart, and who wrote the leading casebook on federal courts uh, for decades. And Karst said that someone in the class remarked one day that Hart was speaking at such a high level that you could only see the soles of his shoes that day. <laughs> And I was reminded of this story in reading Irwin's wonderful book, Closing the Courthouse Do Door. The book covers much of the same territories we covered in the federal courts class. Uh, the 11th Amendment, the abstention doctrine, standing. But what's the first thing that's so notable about the book is, and you all know this from having heard Irwin speak before, is his uncanny ability to make everything clear and straightforward. And so there's no need to look way up at the master's shoes to struggle to make sense of what's going on. Instead, we have the master every bit as capable as Henry Hart and Kenneth Karst, but we can look the master in the eye. Uh, and 
understand what he's saying, taking the most difficult issues of law and making them comprehensible for the average reader. So someone who has no legal training could pick up this book, read it and understand it in a way that I wish I had this book as a law student and maybe I would have understood federal courts when I took it. <laughs> now one technique you use in the book to make difficult concepts comprehensible is to take these cases, which are much more esoteric than the, in your last book. The last book covered Citizens United, covered abortion cases, covered cases that are in the headlines. You're covering cases that most people, uh, even many lawyers, have never heard of or not dealt with. Uh, and you humanize them. And so I thought perhaps we could start a discussion by having you tell one of these stories, maybe the story of uh, Ariana Clay, which starts your book, so that everyone who uh, has not yet read the book can understand the connection between these lofty and esoteric doctrines and their effects on real people. And also if you could reflect on if it's harder to write a book like this than it is to write a book about cases that everybody's heard of. I think you've put your fingers in it's very important to me about this book. If the Supreme Court were to say that the government can give unlimited amounts of money to parochial schools, that would be the headline of every newspaper in the country. But if the Supreme Court says no one has standing to challenge the government giving money to parochial schools, it has exactly the same effect, but no newspaper is going to cover it because it's about standing. The reality is rights in the Constitution are meaningful only if they can be enforced. Access to the courts is crucial to that. And so what I wanted to do was to come up with stories to get people to see that these seemingly dry, even abstract procedural doctrines really matter in terms of people's lives. So I intentionally chose to begin chapter one with the story that Rick alludes to. It's a story of a couple of women in the military. One was Ariana Clay. She'd been in the Marines for a long time. She was stationed in Washington, D.C. She was subjected to constant sexual harassment. At one point, about five in the morning, Two of her fellow Marines came to her apartment. She let them in, and they raped her. She believed that they did this in part for retaliation of her complaining about their sexual harassment. Ultimately, nothing was done to the Marines who raped her, but she was subjected to intensified sexual harassment. There's also the story told of Janet Gallo. She was in the Navy. She was in a ship in close confines. She was raped there, she immediately reported the rape, and then she was subjected to extreme sexual harassment. These two women and ten others sued the highest levels of the Defense Department and the military for creating a culture that was responsible for their rapes and their sexual harassment. The United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit said that their case had to be dismissed. In fact, the D.C. Circuit said this was, quote, an easy case that those who are injured in military service cannot bring suits for money damages. Couldn't sue the Secretary of Defense, couldn't sue the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, couldn't sue those who are in charge of the Navy and Marines, because those who are injured in military service aren't able to bring such civil suits. So when you think about why we allow suits to compensate injured victims, to deter wrongdoing, all of that is lost in these instances. And I chose to begin with a case that never made it to the Supreme Court, because it's probably not familiar <coughs> with people, didn't make any headlines. But think of what it means for all of the women who serve in the armed services who are left with no remedy, <coughs> and then there's no deterrent against wrongdoing into the future. 
So I have some broad questions about the theme of the book, but before I turn to those, I want to ask a question about each of the chapters of the book. So the chapters are, after the introduction, sovereign immunity, immunity for government officers, standing, habeas corpus, and a final chapter that covers pleading abstention doctrines and class action requirements. And now you put everyone in the room to I sleep by telling the titles. <laughs> Uh, so for, for non-lawyers, even for lawyers, these are foreign and esoteric subjects. So I thought we could flesh them out, humanize them uh, a little bit through these questions. And turning first to the question of sovereign immunity, which is the doctrine that says a person cannot sue a state, at least for damages, without the state's consent, let me throw a bit of a softball question for you to get things going. Um, you are my dean, after all. Um, and then we'll get tougher, since I have tenure, after all. Um, <laughs> Can you explain what the Constitution's 11th Amendment says about suits brought um, against states that may have committed constitutional violations, and whether or not the Supreme Court's 11th Amendment jurisprudence follows originalist ideas, that is, the original public understanding of the scope of the 11th Amendment when it was adopted? Yes, I will answer your question, but let me tell a story first, because I think if we just start talking about the 11th Amendment, again, it's so abstract. So I begin this chapter with the story of a woman named Patricia Garrett. She was the head of nursing at the University of Alabama Birmingham Hospital. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. She had to take time off work, especially during the end stages of her chemotherapy. And when she came back to work, she was told there's no longer a job for her. This clearly violates Title I of the Americans with Disabilities Act, that says there cannot be employment discrimination against people with disabilities, and there has to be reasonable accommodation to people with disabilities. So she decides she's going to sue the University of Alabama for violating this important federal statute, the Americans with Disabilities Act. But the Supreme Court ruled five to four that Patricia Garrett couldn't sue the University of Alabama. She couldn't sue the University of Alabama because it's part of the state of Alabama and the state of Alabama can't be sued in federal court because of the 11th Amendment. And that then gets me to answering your question. Uh, the 11th Amendment in its text is seemingly innocuous. It says, the judicial power of the United States shall not extend to a suit against the state by citizens of another state or a foreign country. So you ask, well, Patricia Garrett lived in Alabama. Why couldn't she sue the University of Alabama? That's because in 1890, the Supreme Court said it would be anomalous to allow a state to be sued by its own citizens if it can't be sued by citizens of other states. In fact, the Supreme Court has said there's this broad principle of sovereign immunity that means states can't be sued anywhere, not in state court, not in federal court, with very limited exceptions. Now I can get to the latter part of your question. Is this originalist? The irony here is that it's the most conservative originalist justices who are responsible for the great expansion of sovereign immunity. But none of it can be justified in terms of the text of the Constitution or even in terms of the original understanding. The text says a federal court can't hear a suit against a state when jurisdiction is based on the fact that it's somebody from another state or a foreign country. But the Supreme Court says a person can't sue his or her own state government, not in federal court, not in state court. And I think that scholars, in fact, federal judges like John Gibbons and William Fletcher have done a great job of showing that this can't be reconciled with the framers' intent. Well, why does this matter? Think of all the way that state governments can inflict injuries on people. And that means the victim can't sue the state, 
Again, there's no compensation for wrongdoing. There's no deterrence from wrongdoing in these instances. The Supreme Court has said, for instance, that state governments can't be sued for patent and copyright infringement. Not long ago, I was preparing material for another state's judges' conference. And I said, this is copyrighted material I didn't write. I'll get you a copyright release. And the person in charge of judicial education said, oh, we don't ask that anymore, because no, we know we can't be sued for copyright infringement. Now, law professors don't give any much for what they copyright. But there have been cases where state universities were alleged to engage in patent infringement with hundreds of millions of dollars. And they can't be sued for patent infringement because of sovereign immunity. So this is the real world consequence of the jurisdictional doctrine. So not only is it difficult for individuals to sue states, even their own states, uh, in state or federal court, it's difficult to sue state officers as well. Uh, as you explained, in some circumstances, state officers are given absolute immunity no matter what they do. And you give an example of a judge in uh, the Stump versus Stark Sparkman case who was sued for allowing a mother to obtain a sterilization order against her daughter without the daughter even having a chance for a hearing. Other officers, such as police officers, often get qualified immunity, which makes it hard to sue unless the officer has violated clearly established law at the, at the time. You say in your book that you think some immunity might be required, but this goes too far. And I want to ask you, in terms of immunity for judges and prosecutors, I worry that, that there are abuses, but if you make it too easy to sue judges and prosecutors, you'd end up with a lot of suits, probably many of them non-meritorious, from people who are disgruntled with the decisions of judges, especially in uh, criminal cases. Um, that would take a huge amount of effort to counteract. And that, in turn, could deter good and smart people from becoming judges and prosecutors. So how would you strike the balance different from what we currently see? Again, I'll answer, but I again want to put this in human terms. When you mentioned the example of a woman named Linda Sparkman. When she was a teenager in Indiana, her mother went to a judge in his chambers. She asked the judge to sign an order to have the girl subjected to an involuntary surgical sterilization, a tubal ligation. She went to the judge and said, I don't think my daughter is very bright. So she was at grade level and always had been. She said to the judge, my daughter's staying out at night. I think she's going to get in trouble. No case was ever filed in the judge's court. No docket number was ever assigned. No notice was ever given to Linda Sparkman. She was told she had to have an appendectomy. And only later, when she was married and couldn't conceive a child, did she learn that a tubal ligation was performed. No semblance of due process provided. In fact, the judge had no authority under Indiana law to order such a sterilization. She sued the judge for money damages, and the Supreme Court ruled five to four that the judge was protected by absolute judicial immunity. Well, there was another case that happened later called Morellis versus Waco, where a man was subpoenaed to appear in court, and he didn't come. And the judge said to the bailiff, go find him and rough him up. Teach him a lesson that he can't ignore subpoenas in this court. And the bailiff went and really beat the man up and inflicted serious injuries. And the man sued the judge. The Supreme Court said the judge has absolute immunity and can't be sued at all, even for ordering this beating. Or prosecutors. There's a case, Imbler versus Pacman, where a prosecutor knowingly used perjured testimony that led to an innocent person being convicted and spent nine years in prison. And the Supreme Court said prosecutors have absolute immunity for their prosecutorial acts. Or a case that happened here in Southern California involving a man named Tommy Lee Goldstein who 
spent 23 and a half years in prison for murders he didn't commit. There was serious prosecutorial misconduct in not turning over key evidence to the defense. And the Supreme Court ruled that the prosecutors were protected by absolute immunity and couldn't be sued. And I could give so many other examples of this. Now, I could also talk to other areas. My guess is, unless you focus on this area of law, you don't realize if a police officer lies on the witness stand, commits perjury, the police officer cannot be sued for money damages, even if intentional lies are proven. Now, the police officer might be administratively disciplined, might be criminally prosecuted, but a police officer's absolute immunity to civil suits for money damages for any testimony given on the witness stand, even perjurious testimony. So now I can get to your question. I don't think there should ever be absolute immunity. We could certainly decide what's the standard we need in order to protect judges and prosecutors and police. We can have what the appropriate standard is to screen out the non-meritorious suits. But when judges and prosecutors and police are using their power to inflict such great injuries, there should be the ability of the injured person to recover. And what do you think about the deterrence concern? Well, it's exactly because of the deterrence concern that I think civil liability is so important. We want civil liability in part to compensate the injured victim, but in part to deter wrongdoing. And I think that if judges are liable, and we can say for their intentional violation of constitutional rights, I think that we will deter. Um, I'm not worried about over-deterring the judges. I'm worried about the situations like Stump v. Sparkman and Morales versus Waco, or with prosecutors Imbler versus Pacman. Now, Article 3 of the Constitution limits federal courts to deciding cases and controversies. As I just told my remedy students, the courts are not going to settle a disagreement that you and I have over the scope of the partisan gerrymandering claims. They're not going to resolve academic questions, because an academic question means it's something nobody cares about but academics. But courts have imposed much stricter standing requirements, requiring showing that the person suing has an actual stake in their resolution. And in recent years, has kept many potentially strong cases out of court, in large part thanks to Justice Scalia's three-part test in a case called Lujan. And I'm wondering if you think that federal courts should not be in the business of resolving law professor hypotheticals. I didn't know where your line was. It, it seemed to me that you would pretty much let anyone in court with any kind of complaint about the understanding of the Constitution. No, I wouldn't. There has to be a legal claim, or what we would call a cause of action. If somebody has a legal entitlement to a remedy, they should be able to sue. Again, this all sounds too abstract, so let me give you an example. And one that has a real effect on how policing is done in the United States. It's a case called City of Los Angeles versus Lyons about 30 years ago. It involved a man by the name of Adolph Lyons, at the time, he was 24 years old. At about 2 in the morning, he was stopped by Los Angeles police officers bringing a burnt-out taillight. The officer ordered Lyons out of his car and slammed Lyons' hands above his head onto the roof of the car. Lyons had his keys in his hand, and he complained to the officer that the keys were cutting into the skin of his palm. The officer then administered a chokehold on Lyons and rendered Lyons unconscious. Lyons awoke. He urinated and defecated. He was spitting blood and dirt. He was given a traffic citation and allowed to go. Lyons did some research and discovered at that point 16 people in Los Angeles had died from police use of the chokehold, almost all like him, African-American men. Lyons sued the city of Los Angeles for an injunction 
to stop the police from being able to use the chokehold except when necessary to protect the officer's life or safety. But the Supreme Court ruled, again five to four, that Lyons lacked standing to sue. The Supreme Court said Lyons could not show that it was likely that he personally be choked again in the future. The Supreme Court said a plaintiff like Lyons has to show a likelihood that he personally will suffer the injury. This makes it very difficult to bring suits against police departments, very difficult to bring suits against the government. Even we know there's an unconstitutional policy, we don't know exactly who is going to be hurt by it. That's very different than two law professors talking about an academic issue. This is somebody who did personally suffer an injury, and Lyons would continue to suffer an injury as long as this was the policy, even if he wasn't retracted again. Because every time he would go out, given the Los Angeles Police Department, he'd have reason to fear he might get stopped and might have that horrifying experience that could even result in his death. So I think the question is, does the person have what the law calls a cause of action, a legal entitlement to relief on proof of specific facts? And I think what's the problem is that the Supreme Court too often has kept people with real injuries from being able to sue. So would anyone, should anyone who, if LAPD still had this policy, be able to sue? Yeah, certainly, I think, given that at that point, six, um, 16 black men had died from it and countless others, I think certainly any African-American man in the city should have been able to say, I am fear that I'm going to be stopped by the police and I'm going to be subjected to the chokehold. And if nothing else, Lyons, who's been subjected to it, has the injury that's sufficient for standing. I want to turn to habeas corpus, which stands out as different uh, from other doctrines, mm -hmm. the one I know the least about and learned the most uh, from uh, in the book, it involves people who've uh, either been convicted of crimes or even worse, held without being convicted of crimes for indefinite period. Uh, habeas, at least in theory, gives federal courts a chance to take a look at constitutional violations occurring at the state or federal uh, level and to remedy them. It's no secret that in Congress, criminals and criminal defendants don't have strong lobbies. And Congress has passed some laws regulating habeas practice that have made it harder for defendants to raise the claim. And so my question here is, who is more to blame? Is lack of access primarily a problem of how the courts have interpreted uh, the Constitution and statutes? Or is it more a problem caused by Congress through the passage of laws such as the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996? Uh, who's to blame and what's to be done about it? Most of the book is about Supreme Court-created doctrines. So what we've talked about so far, like with regard to sovereign immunity or with regard to standing, is judicially created. For habeas corpus, both Congress and the Supreme Court deserve the blame. The Supreme Court, even before 1996, had adopted a number of decisions, number of doctrines that made it very difficult for those who've been unconstitutionally convicted to get in federal court. Congress then made it much worse with the statute that you mentioned. And if you listen to the title, it's called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. And then the Supreme Court made it even worse by interpreting that statute to really bar people from getting into court. Again, this all sounds so abstract. Let me give you an example. This is actually the first case that I ever got to argue in the Supreme Court. It's on behalf of a man by the name of Leandro Andrade. He was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 50 years for stealing $150 worth of videotapes from Kmart stores in San Bernardino, California. He received this sentence under California's Three Strikes Law, even though he'd never committed a violent crime. 
He received this sentence under California's Three Strikes Law, even though prior to California's Three Strikes Law, no one in the history of the United States had ever received a life sentence for shoplifting. Now, in order to get habeas corpus under a specific statutory provision because of this 1996 law, 28 United States Code 2254D, a person has to show that a state court decision is contrary to or an unreasonable application of clearly established laws articulated by the Supreme Court. So what we need to show is that the state court decision is inconsistent with the Supreme Court precedent. I had a Supreme Court precedent. There's a case called Solem versus Helm where a man was given a sentence of life without parole for passing a bad check worth $100. And the Supreme Court said that's cruel and unusual punishment. And so I could say my client should get habeas corpus because I have a case just like this. In fact, the factual similarities between Solon versus Helm and my case, Lockyer versus Andrade, were striking. Andrade and the person in Solon versus Helm were the same age. They both served in the military. They both got addicted to drugs while in the military. They each had three children. You can't get a case that's more on point than this. And I was appointed by the United States Court of Appeals to the Ninth Circuit in this case and won there with the Ninth Circuit saying, this is cruel and unusual punishment, and we can give relief under the habeas corpus statute. I lost in the Supreme Court five to four. Justice O'Connor wrote, it was an ideologically divided court, and she said, I don't get relief because of the habeas corpus statute. She said, Solon versus Helms is distinguishable. His sentence was life without the possibility of parole. Andrade is eligible for parole in the year 2046 when he'll be 87 years old. Therefore, you can't say that there's a Supreme Court case on point. I'm not caricaturing her. That's what the decision, what the decision said. Um, now, anything we know about prisoner life expectancy is that he wasn't going to live to be 87 years old and make the year 2046. It was a life without possibility of parole. Um, after this case, and it's really an aside for our purposes, I brought another habeas corpus petition on behalf of somebody who was given a sentence of 225 years to life. Only a lawyer can use an expression like 225 <laughs> to life. And I said, this really is life without possibility of parole. The federal court denied habeas corpus based on Lockyer versus Andrade. Well, you want to tell what, what happened to uh, Well, the Andrade. good story is um, you might remember that four years ago, California voters amended the three strikes law to say that the third strike had to be a serious or violent crime and that it applied retroactively. And Andrade then got out because of that. So he won't have to remain in prison. But he spent another decade in prison because I lost this case in 2003. And he ultimately got out in 2013. So thankfully, it's not until the year 2046. But he did spend another 10 years in prison because of the habeas corpus statute and the way the Supreme Court's interpreted it. In your final substantive chapter, we get to the potpourri section. Um, That's exactly right. Hitting on pleading rules, abstention, and class actions. Uh, and I wanted to ask you here a different kind of question, empirical question, to the extent that you can venture an estimation. How many people are being denied remedies because of these doctrines? My sense is that if we talk about just consumer class action alone, these accounts for millions of people. And, and you tell the story, and you may want to tell more of it, of just the, the AT&T mobility case involving um, a company taking a little bit of money from many, many people and not being able to get an effective remedy there. But it's hard for me to get a sense of the harder pleading rules and all these things. How many people are actually affected on a day-to-day -day basis by these rules? And I don't know any way you can count. 
Um, I can certainly talk about the case you mentioned. Um, a Supreme Court decision from about five years ago, AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion. AT&T was advertising free cell phones for those who signed up for its service. The Concepcion's, a married couple, went to sign up for the service. Um, they, like all of us, had to sign an agreement. They, probably most, most of us, didn't read the agreement they were signing. They were surprised when they got their first monthly statement. They each charged $32.80. This was the sales tax. They thought that since AT&T promised free cell phones, it should have to absorb the cost of the sales tax. Decided they wanted to bring a class action suit against AT&T for fraud. Well, there's a clause in their agreement that said that if any dispute with AT&T arising on the service, they'd have to go to arbitration. They couldn't go to court. There's a federal statute, the Federal Arbitration Act of 1925, that says that arbitration clauses in contracts that are part of interstate commerce shall be enforced unless they're revocable under state law. And the California Supreme Court had specifically ruled that such arbitration clauses aren't enforceable in California. That there's no real contract there. There's no bargain for exchange. In the law, they're called contracts of adhesion. And the Federal Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the Concepcion, saying the Federal Arbitration Act doesn't apply. The Supreme Court reversed five to four. Justice Scalia wrote the opinion and said that the Concepcion's had to go to arbitration. They couldn't go to court. Justice Breyer, in his dissent, said, be clear about what this means. It's not going to mean hundreds of thousands or millions of claims against AT&T. It's going to mean no claims against AT&T. Because no one's going to sue or go to arbitration for $32.80. That's where we need class action suits. And in fact, people have done studies and found there have been virtually no arbitrations against AT&T for this, for this reason. Now again, I want you to think about this in terms of human impact. These arbitration clauses are increasingly common in employment contracts, in consumer contracts, in medical contracts. Not too long ago, I went to see a new eye doctor for the first time. I was given this big stack of papers to fill out. And in the middle was a form that I was asked to sign. But if any claims against the doctor, I couldn't go to court. I'd have to go to arbitration. And I said to the receptionist, will the doctor still see me if I don't sign? And she said, I don't know. Nobody's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> Twice in the last six weeks, I've been told by individuals, one a federal court judge, and one a leading plaintiff-side lawyer, that do they had doctors who would not treat them without signing the arbitration clauses. Um, around the same time this happened, I bought a new Dell computer. And as you know, in order to use a computer and iPad for the first time, you have to click that you've read the terms and agree to them. I usually just click and use the machine. For the iPad, the terms are 46 single-space pages long. But when I got my new Dell computer, I decided to read the conditions. And sure enough, there was a clause that said, if I had any claims against Dell arising out of the computer, I couldn't sue Dell. I'd have to go to arbitration. I wrote Dell a letter saying I did not agree to that clause. And by opening the envelope of my letter, they agreed I could sue them if we had a dispute. Yes. Dell did not write back. The computer sort of works still. Get a Mac. Yeah. Um, now that we've uh, gone through the different parts of the book, uh, I want to ask you some bigger picture questions before opening up to the audience uh, for their comments or questions. And let me start with this. And this was the part of the book that I um, had the most trouble understanding your argument. You frame this as a fundamental dispute between you and your critics as one about what the purpose of the federal courts is. You say some people say, see the 
purpose of the federal courts to resolve disputes, but you see that the more fundamental role is to enforce the Constitution. And I, I wasn't sure I understood the distinction between the two. And I think this maybe ties into the question of, is what you're really looking for, and you mentioned this uh, in your response to counterarguments, that what you really want is for the courts to be empowered to give more remedies towards more liberal ends. And aside from the Second Amendment context, which is an example you give, it looks like most of the kinds of claims would be more pro-consumer, pro-plaintiff, anti-government kinds of lawsuits. And I'm, ju I'm just wondering if, if you could separate the ideology from the arguments in the book. My premise is that the preeminent role of the federal courts is to enforce the Constitution. That the Constitution is about limiting government, those limits have meaning only if they're enforced. And that's not a liberal idea. That's what Chief Justice John Marshall said in Marbury versus Madison in explaining why it's the province and duty of the Judicial Department to say what the law is. Now, what I argue for in the book is that government and government officers should be able to be held liable when they violate the Constitution, that standing doctrine should facilitate it, that a prisoner who claims to be held in violation of the Constitution and laws of the United States should be able to have a remedy. I don't think those should be liberal or conservative ideas. But if they are liberal at this point in time, then I'm glad to say I wholeheartedly adopt them. <laughs> So finally, I want to turn to the why bother portion of your conclusion. You said you wrote this book knowing it would be very difficult to get the Supreme Court of Congress to change some of these rules, such as requiring the overturning of precedents or rewriting of statutes. And so on this, I have a two-part question. Uh, so I'll ask you the first part and then have you answer and then come back to the second part. So first, how is the election of Donald Trump and the likely solidification of a conservative majority on the Supreme Court for the next generation changed your thinking, if at all? about the issues in the book? I sent this book to my editor at Yale in September of 2015. I then went through the copy editing process and production process over the course of last spring and maybe into the summer. Um, I have to admit that when I wrote this book, I was hopeful that the ideology of the Supreme Court would change. Since 1971, when Richard Nixon got his third and fourth justice confirmed for the court, until February, 16th, February 13, 2016, when Justice Scalia died, there were always at least five and sometimes as many as eight justices appointed by Republican presidents. I was hopeful, even before Justice Scalia passed away, that there was going to be the opportunity for a majority appointed by Democratic presidents. These doctrines shouldn't be ideological, but all the cases that I talk about were ideological, and so I was hopeful that it would change. I was hopeful that Congress would change. Um, it's not going to happen. Um, you know, uh, there's going to be uh, at least five Republican justices very soon on the Supreme Court. It's possible, depending what happens with Justice Ginsburg or Justice Kennedy or Justice Breyer, that Donald Trump might get one or more picks for the Supreme Court. Um, but to me, that doesn't make the book less important. It makes it just as important to point out what the Supreme Court has done. And as I said in response to your initial question, part of what makes this so insidious is people don't pay attention to doctrines like sovereign immunity and standing in habeas corpus. And our rights are meaningless unless we have a place to enforce them. 
A final question is kind of the, for the lawyers in the room, the 12B6 so what question. Imagine that tomorrow all of the doctrines that you want reversed are reversed. My grandmother would use the phrase from your lips to God's ears. Yes. <laughs> There's another Yiddish expression that I would say, but I can't say uh, in public. Um, if, um, if that happened, I kept hearing you say, and on a five to four vote, and on a five to four vote, when we get to the substance of constitutional law and the substance of statutory interpretation, we have the same divide. And so how much of this is about access to the courts versus an ideological battle that's just being fought in a different arena or in a, or in a different set of cases? And that, would, would, would things really change if these cases could be heard on the merits by the Supreme Court, the same Supreme Court that's been dividing five to four? Often, yes. I mean, take habeas courses, for example. I think if those who were wrongly convicted had access to the courts, it would make an enormous difference in their lives, and I believe in police and prosecutor practices. I believe if state governments and state offices could be sued when they violate the Constitution, it would change behavior as well as compensate those who are injured. Undoubtedly, these doctrines are tied to the justices' views of the merits. I think there's a reason why it's the conservatives who are restricting jurisdiction. It's a way for them to achieve their substantive goals through procedural doctrines. So if the procedures change, I hope the substance will change. But just changing these, I think, could make an enormous difference in people's lives. This is all about people's lives, often in the most important, the most intimate aspects of people's lives. I suppose that if these doctrines changed, uh, allowing access into the courts, that there would be a lot that could happen in the lower courts that the Supreme Court would not Absolutely. necessarily affect. All right, we have uh, time for a few questions. Anyone has a question? Yes. I wanted to talk about the Mines case that you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, with police officers. It seemed like the court had reached some kind of a circular reference error if he had been uh, gone through an incident that he was seeking relief, he was black and a citizen of LA, and those three things on their own were insufficient for him to have a stake in the outcome. It's almost as if the court is saying the only way he has a stake in the outcome is if the police department are actively letting him know that they are coming after his life to do the same thing under the same circumstances, which just seems irrational. Do they offer any other kinds of guidelines to what would they would accept as if, if those three things, his, the fact that it happened to him before, his race, his citizenship in L.A., uh, were insufficient, do they offer any other guidelines as what? Before you, before you answer, I'm supposed to repeat the question for the web audience. So I'm not going to repeat the whole question, but the question is about the circular reasoning in Lyons and whether or not there was, uh, the court offered any, any additional proof that could have been offered so that the uh, case had a chance to be heard on the merits. Justice Byron White wrote the opinion for the court in Lyons. And this is just a suit for injunctive relief. Could he get an injunction to stop the Los Angeles police from using the chokehold, except when it's to protect the officer's life or safety? And what Justice White said is, it's not credible to believe that Lyons is likely to be stopped by the police and choked again in the future. And since he can't show that he personally would suffer the injury in the future, he doesn't get sued for injunction. Or I'll give another example where this was applied. It was a lower court case in Chicago where women who were stopped for minor traffic violations were strip searched by the police. And so they brought a lawsuit against the Chicago Police Department 
to stop this horrifying, degrading practice. And the federal district court said, these women plaintiffs can't show that they're likely to be stopped for traffic violations again in the future and then be subjected to a strip search, so they lack standing to sue. Now, I could take this out of the police context and give you that, but the answer to your question is, I've presented to you exactly what Justice White said in the city of Los Angeles versus Lyons. Since Adolph Lyons couldn't show he personally was likely to be choked again in the future, he could not sue for an injunction. Yes. Do you see any semblance of like a political question doctrine sort of seeping them itself into these sort of decisions where the Supreme Court is sort of saying, look, these are political questions, whether LAPD should be using a chokehold, they should be answered by the city council criminalizing it, and then you have a criminal prosecution, but judges shouldn't be making these decisions against civil suits. Don't the answer. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Hold your fire. Um, it's <laughs> Is there something uh, connected here to a uh, kind of political question doctrine that these are issues that should really be resolved in the political process rather than be resolved in the courts? And I'll just add on to that that Ju Judge Gorsuch wrote a piece in 2005 in the uh, um, National Review online where he made a similar point that the left relies too much on the courts uh, for um, trying to get relief and it should all be fought in the political process. Let me answer in two ways. One is in terms of the role of the courts, and the second is in terms of literally the political question doctrine. I've said here, and I say in the book, that the role of the court should be to enforce the Constitution. Now, Rick says there's a competing view that I take on, and it's a view that Justice Scalia often articulates, saying we need to limit the role of the federal court in the system of separation of powers. But that begs the question about what should be the system of separation of powers. If you begin with my premise that the role of the court is to enforce the Constitution, then that's what separation of powers should provide with regard to judicial behavior. And so my answer is, when there's an allegation the Constitution will be violated, we don't leave that to the political process. To me, that goes back to Marbury versus Madison. It's a province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is, because otherwise the limits in the Constitution have no meaning. Now, the second thing is there is something called the political question doctrine where the Supreme Court says there are some allegations of constitutional violations that the federal courts will not adjudicate. And in one of the chapters I discuss that and argue that it's also inconsistent with the idea that if there's a claim of a constitutional violation, it's the federal court's job to interpret the Constitution and to enforce it. And do you have any response in particular to Judge Gorsuch's? I don't know if you had a chance to read that. Uh, that he said, Brown versus Board of Education, that was great, but since then, there's been too much resort to the courts for the expansion of rights. I want to answer by comparing two Supreme Court decisions that came down one day after the other. And I know you discussed them in your new book manuscript. Um, one was Shelby County, Alabama versus Holder, which came down on June 25, 2013, where the Supreme Court, five to four, declared unconstitutional a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Chief Justice Roberts wrote, joined by Justice Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito. And the next day, the Supreme Court decided United States versus Windsor, where the Supreme Court, five to four, struck down Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act. There, Justice Kennedy wrote, joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. The reason I compare these two cases is that the conservatives in one case were striking down a federal law 
and the liberals were saying, we need to defer to Congress with regard to the Voting Rights Act. And in the other, it was the liberal justices who were striking down a federal law, and it was the conservatives who were saying, we have to defer to Congress. The lesson that I draw from that is both conservatives and liberals at times want the court to strike down laws, and at times they want deference, they just disagree about when. So the conservatives were very happy when conservative justices struck down key provisions of the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act and Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, the focus of your last book. Conservatives are very happy to have the Supreme Court strike down gun laws. Conservatives are very happy to have the Supreme Court strike down a provision of the Voting Rights Act. So it's not like conservatives are arguing that we've got to just defer to the political process. They want just as much judicial activism. They just want it in different areas. Time for one more question. Yeah, Bert. I'm going to turn to you then as my lawyer. <laughs> Uh, the question is, do, do, the, do the states uh, uh, of Washington and Hawaii have standing to challenge the new revised executive order uh, on travel that the Trump administration has released? Your question is, in my conception of standing, that would be easy, yes. <laughs> I think the more important question is, under current standing law, do they have standing? And I would say, yes, they do. In fact, the Ninth Circuit, its ruling maybe a month ago, three weeks ago, specifically held that the state of Washington had standing to sue, in part because it's suing on behalf of its students and its other residents who are affected by this. Um, there is a doctrine that says that a party can raise the claims of a third party not before the court if there's a sufficient identity of interest that the plaintiff can be trusted to represent the interest of the third party. And the Ninth Circuit said that was present. There's also a doctrine that lets the state sue on behalf of its citizens when it's called parents patriae. And that was present. And I think the Ninth Circuit got it right with regard to that. I think the same analysis would apply with regard to the new suit by the state of Washington and the state of Hawaii, which is also in the Ninth Circuit. So I don't think I need to expand standing to be able to do this. And to me, this is why it's so important that we allow standing to sue in federal court. There is a serious claim here that the Constitution has been violated, that the Trump executive order is religious discrimination. There's a serious claim that the Trump order is violating federal statute, a 1965 statute that says that visas and immigration policy can't be based on country of origin. And there should be the ability to sue it. And the state of Washington, I think, is representing its citizens and non-citizens, documented and undocumented, in being able to bring this. Uh, last, last question. Uh, sort of the follow-up to the executive order question, I'm wondering what future you see to enforcing international law claims in U.S. courts. Um, I know with Medellin, it's sort of pessimistic, but that also seems to be the worst possible set of facts to enforce a claim. And as, a, as it relates to the travel ban, there is also, there is laws such as the refugee law being enforced in the courts, or is it sort of uh, law at this point? 
So the question is about the enforcement of international law in the federal courts, especially after the Supreme Court's decision in the recent Medellin case. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court has been very hostile to enforcing international law in the United States courts. Um, one area of this is there's a federal statute, the Alien Tort Statute, that allows victims of human rights abuses to sue in the American courts. Um, and the Supreme Court, in a couple of cases, Alvarez Machine versus the United States, Keogh versus Dutch Petroleum, both argued by Paul Hoffman from our faculty, um, said such claims can't be brought. Um, it's obviously a long story and we're short of time, but the simple answer is, I think with the current court and the court that's foreseeable, I don't see the Supreme Court being amenable to allowing international, enforcing international law or national human rights in American courts. I hope I'm wrong on that, but I don't see any indication from this court that it's going to change. All right, well, let me remind you that there's going to be a book signing outside in a reception, and there'll be people guiding you to the library. Is that right? So, but uh, if everyone will join me in thanking Erwin for sharing with us. And thanking Rick. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.